Our text this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12, and the title is Going to Church. And so we're going to talk about the church this morning, and the Old Testament church and the New Testament church, and uh, what, what the Lord expects from us. So if you have your place in Deuteronomy 12, or if you're looking at the screen, let's read the first four verses. And Moses, again, Moses is preparing the people to enter into the land, uh, a land that's different from anything they've known, a land that's full of idolatry, that God is going to judge using the nation of Israel for their idolatry. Uh, that's why he is going to judge them, and, and that's why there's going to be so much destruction and death is because God had given them 400 years to repent, and they had not repented. And they were a wicked, idolatrous people, and it was a rebuke to the holiness of God. And God judges them using the nation, nation of Israel. So Moses, again, is preparing them. Uh, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, so he's, he's instructing them and, and giving them information that they're going to need as they go into the land and they are exposed to things different from anything they've ever known. So, verse 1, These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord your God of your fathers has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. Now remember, he had already given them the commandments, and the commandments begin with, uh, that there have no other God before me, and you don't make a graven image. And so <clears throat> these people were violating those two commandments. And so their images would be of maybe nature or wooden things or that erect stones. It wasn't, there, there weren't statues in that day, so it wouldn't be a statue, but it would be stone images that had symbolized, symbolized something, or there would be wooden carved uh, images, and they were various places. They didn't have temples at that time like you would get later in the Greek culture or the Roman culture, but th- what they, they had high places. So they'd go up uh, on the top of a hill or a place out, out that, and that's where they would build them, big groves of trees for some protection. And, and so they'd build them and worship there. And uh, <clears throat> I read to you a few weeks ago or couple of months ago about Canaanite worship. And let me just let me just recap this morning. It was socially destructive. Uh, <clears throat> they had no regard for human life. They used child sacrifice. Um, they their acts were uh, sexual in nature because it attracted people to, to keep them and so it's pornographic. Uh, they had no interest in morality. Uh, they believe that these deities... See, the people understood there is within us, Romans chapter 1, there's within us an innate knowledge that there is a God. <clears throat> Excuse me. And if you don't know, 
if you don't know the biblical God, um, and he revealed himself through nature, Psalm 90, he revealed himself through nature, every person knows there's a deity, that there is a God. And so they have an innate nature to worship. So you want to you worship. You recognize that the storms roll in. You recognize that, you know, some, there's the seasons. You see things come back to life in the spring. So you have this understanding that there's something that we don't know about that's creating life. And maybe they see the birth of a child. And even though they don't respect the child itself, they understand that this is a process uh, they had animals that gave birth, and so uh, they knew that something gives life. And so they, they want to worship, and they want to be blessed of these gods. They fear them, and they want to be blessed of them, and so they want to appease them in some way. So they begin to offer sacrifices <clears throat> and, and go through rituals to somehow appease these gods so that they would have a good crop. Uh, imagine that you're... Uh, <clears throat> trying to raise a crop or you're trying to raise a flock and uh, something comes in, destroys your flock, whether it's wild animals or whether it's some disease that you don't know about or some plague or your crops get uh, burned up because it doesn't rain or they get burned up because there's a thunderstorm and the fire starts. <clears throat> so they they want to appease, the, they think, okay, the gods are mad or the gods need appeasement, so they begin to do sacrifice. Or they want something personally, so they do sacrifice. So God hated it. It was a rebuke to God. And so they, they deserve to be destroyed. Um, and the Lord, so Moses is saying, when you go into that land, don't be tempted to that. And we know the history, and we realize they didn't listen. They, they get tempted and eventually they go into captivity. So we're going to move forward a thousand years, and God sends the nation into captivity for this very problem because they get involved in idolatry. Uh, even Solomon, the wisest man of the world, he, he built one of his wives a temple to Molech, which in the, you offered your children to Molech. And Solomon uh, did that. He built a temple for one of his wives to, to worship um, Moloch. And so this is a work-based worship. And the work-based part is that I've got to do something to appease a God that I don't know about so that I can have a good life or so that I can get what I want out of life or so I won't be damaged in life in some way. And so I've got to appease this deity that I don't know, that I don't understand. And so I have to, I have to do this for my benefit. You see, Christianity is just the opposite. Christianity is that Christ did something for us, that we be reconciled to God. And there's nothing that we can do. But I'll say this to you, and I say it to you, I think, maybe too often. Our temptation is to do the same thing. Not to worship at an idolatrous altar, but to worship with the idea that I can do something to appease God that I can do something to make God bless me, that I can do something to get his favor. And so we, we read things about, okay, how, how do you increase in spirituality or how do you become a spiritual person? Nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm for that. I've read, I've read those things. How, how do you be a disciplined person? How do you be, you know, so you, 
And, and that's not the same thing. That, and and that, if those things are correct and biblical, what they do is they point you to the Word of God and say, these are the structures that you live within because of what Christ has done. And when you live within these structures, your life is going to be more orderly. I won't say blessed, but more orderly, more functional, uh, less chaotic. Your life is your life, and just if we kept the Ten Commandments, which we can't, but if we did, we would have a less chaotic, a more orderly life, a more intimate relationship with God. Uh, we would be more at peace. We'd have more joy. And, and see, this is what God wants. We're to, and it's not that we're doing it to get something. We're doing it because God has said to us, out of love, this is how you live. This is how life works. And you have this sin nature, but if you live in this manner, your life is going to be more functional uh, to your benefit than if you live in some other manner. So, Moses saying, don't give in to that. Don't get involved. And so, uh, he gives them instruction about what they should do. Look in verse 5. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. Now remember, they'd been dwelling in this encampment, and even though it moved in the desert, and they had a tabernacle, but the tabernacle uh, would be in the center of their encampment, and they would take their uh, offering, their prescribed offerings, they would go to that tabernacle, and there they would offer their prescribed offering, and they, uh, they would offer their sin offering. They would go there on the Day of Atonement, so they, they had these feast days that they would go and offer it and then take it back to their home. It would be blessed by the priest or whatever and, and killed, and then they would take what, their portion of the meat back to their house and eat it there in their encampment. They, could, they couldn't all eat at the tabernacle, but so they would, they would eat within this encampment. But think with me for a moment. This encampment was consolidated, and now they're going to go into the land, and they're going to be spread out through the nation of Israel over into what today would be Lebanon, Syria, and so they're going to be spread out. They're going to, and they can't, they can't go daily or weekly to the tabernacle. They, they're not going to be able to do it. <clears throat> but so Moses is saying, this is what God wants you to do. He wants you, once he establishes a central place, he wants you to go there and worship. Now, they're not going to go every Sabbath day, but they're going to go in prescribed times. It's really interesting. We can't, I, I, didn't, I didn't put in the notes details uh, <clears throat> about... But at some point, at some point, I'm trying to remember where, God actually tells the nation of Israel, let's just say, okay, the temple's in Jerusalem, that's where it ends up, and if, they, if they're coming from up in Galilee to Jerusalem, they're leaving their home and their crops and everything they own, and they're coming down for about probably a three or four day trip, I guess you could walk it in one day. But they're coming down for the holiday, for the feast, a three or four day trip. They're gone from home. And God said to them, when you do this, your stuff will be protected. No one's going to take your stuff. 
Now, that's just God's intervention. God's saying that on these special occasions, I want you to come to a central place, and I'm going to protect your stuff while you're gone, because this is my will. This is what I want you to do. So here he's saying, and we might ask the question, why? Why does he want to do that? I don't want to get, we're going to look at the New Testament church in just a moment, but we, we as Americans especially have this idea that we're free to do what we want. We're free to worship in any manner that we choose, and it's really not true. God has a biblical mandate for us as well, uh, how we are to worship, and, and this is what he gives them. So verse uh, 5, you seek the place where the Lord your God chooses, all your tribe, put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. And there you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. <clears throat> and there you shall eat before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice in all that you have put your all, all to, in all in which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So go back again to verse six. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offering of your hand, your vowed offering. So all of these things he's saying that these are your prescribed offerings, and you you don't do them in your own backyard. You don't do them in, in your own neighborhood. You do them at a place that God prescribes. And when we look at the nation of Israel from here forward, when they go into the land... The tabernacle is established at a place called Mizpah, and then it moves to Shiloh, and then it moves under David to Jerusalem. Okay, and then Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, it's built on Mount Moriah where Abraham offered Isaac, and it's it's called Mount Zion as well. So this is God's prescribed place. So this is the place they're to go to, and they're to go there, on their feast days, that's prescribed to them through Leviticus, and they're to bring their offerings that there are, are prescribed to them and offer them then and there. Now remember, God, when God's dividing the land under Moses to the 12 tribes, he doesn't give the Levites any land except the places where they actually live. So he gave them cities to live in, but they don't, They don't have territory. They have enough land for a garden, but they don't have territory. And so they were to be supported by the other 11 tribes by giving their tithes and offerings, and that's distributed to the Levites. The Levites were set apart to serve God and to serve the nation of Israel. And so that's why they would have to be prescribed that these offerings come to a central place so they could be distributed to the Levites in an equal uh, in an equal manner to support the Levites, but not only that, <clears throat> but God wanted to. I think I'm giving you my opinion now. God God wanted to protect their worship. When I do things, however I choose, I do things that my predisposition would lead me to do. My personality would lead me to do. My uh, my time and my time in life would lead me to my generation is what I'm trying to say. I, I do things like my generation. Wouldn't you? You know, you know most of the complaints we get in church, it's generational. 
you know, those blooming kids, they got that music turned up. <clears throat> so that's all I'm going to say. You know, but it has to do with dress. It has to do with music. It has to do with preferences. Um, it, it, it normally doesn't have to do so much with doctrine and theology, uh, the complaints that we get. It has to do, it has to do with those peripheral things that are generational. And so I'm saying to you, be patient, be kind, be considerate. But we also need to be biblical. And the, every generation needs to be biblical. Those kids listening to that loud music need to be, need to be biblical as, as well as us who listen to country. <laughs> country gospel or whatever you call it. So, <clears throat> Okay. And he says in verse 7, There you sleep before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice in all that you have put your hand uh, and you shall re- rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice. Okay, let me start off. You shall eat before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice at all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, and which the Lord your God has blessed you. When they took an offering to the temple, uh, they would, let's just say on Passover, they'd take a lamb that's unblemished, and the priest would kill it and, and drain the blood, and then they gave it back to the people, and the people would have a feast with it. So what they're, what they're saying is that when you're, nearly all the offerings, some of them were burned completely, like a sin offering were burned completely, but these, most of the time you took your offering, the priest bled it, gave it back to you, they'd take a portion, a shoulder or a ham or whatever, well, they didn't eat pork, but they'd, they'd take a portion of it for themselves and then they'd give it back to you, and you would eat it as a family in celebration. So it'd be a feast time. So their worship was from there were feast times before the Lord, and they would say, "This is God's blessing, and we're enjoying God's richest blessing that what He's given to us, and we're dedicating it's been dedicated to Him." So that's what He's saying. Not what you eat at home, He's going to say, but what. These are your dedicated offerings that you're going to go to the central location. Now, why? Because they would stay straight. They would stay orderly if they kept going to the central location. The priests would see to that. Uh, Their leadership would see to that. Verse 8, you shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. So he's saying... You can't just worship as you please. Um, Verse 9, For as yet you have not come to the rest in the inheritance which the Lord your God has given you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit, He gives you rest from your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety. Then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make His name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offering in your hand. He repeats this, all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion nor inheritance with you. But he still can rejoice. So it's, isn't it interesting? He said, you come and worship and you do it rejoicing. I'm going to read you what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said, all Christian duties should be done joyfully, but especially the work of praising the Lord. I have been in congregations where the tune was delorious. I don't know what that word means. Delorious to the very last degree, 
where the time was so dreadfully slow, the spirit of the people had seemed to be so damp, so heavy, so dead, that we might have supposed that they met to prepare their minds for a hanging rather than for blessing the ever-gracious God. That's interesting. (laughs) All right, are you joyous when you go into the service? Are you joyful? Are you thinking, how long till lunch? You know, how long, you know, is that preacher going to say the same things he always does? You know, what, what, are, we going to, what are we going to do? <clears throat> Spurgeon goes on, he said, We ought not to worship God in a half-hearted sort of way, as it were now our duty to bless God, but we felt it to be a weary business, and we would get it through as quickly as we could and have done with it, and the sooner the better. No, no. All that is within me, bless his holy name. God cares how you go to church. God is, God is worshipped by the way you express yourself. God is worshipped with your spirit and attitude. You remember Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus meets the woman at the well, John 4, and uh, we always, you know, we key on the fact she was a, a wicked prostitute, and Lord, so we, we key on those things. But remember, he preached to her. What did he preach? God is a spirit. A most important passage, I think, is that God is a spirit and must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Okay, the truth is doctrine. It's theology. The truth, there is one God. He has one Son, and they are, and there is a Holy Spirit. There's a trinity, and God gave his Son to pay the ultimate price of sacrifice that we might be reconciled back to God. We are a love gift. You are a love gift of the Father to the Son. And you are, and that's what we are. We're going to be the bride of Christ one day. We already are, but one day it's going to be realized. We're going to dwell in His presence in, in in a more intimate relationship with Him physically one day. And so when we realize that truth, then we are to worship in spirit. Our spirit has to be involved. And how, how does your spirit get involved? Well, it can either be, it can either be a depressing spirit, as Spurgeon said, that he's experienced, or it can be a joyful spirit. But you're grateful for that. In spite of the problems in your life. You know, you remember, at, here's the, the children of Israel came out, and the whole time they murmured. They murmured. Dear God, we murmur. We, we murmur about everything. You may be privileged to go to lunch today and somebody wait on you, somebody making minimum wage is going to wait on you and somebody making minimum wage is cooking your food and you murmur about how it's done. Do I get an amen on that? <laughs> You know, we go to the store and they don't wait on us quickly enough. We murmur. We're, we're buying, we're buy, we have money to buy things. We're buying things that are prepackaged and prepared for us, and we murmur about the time frame. I'm just, I'm just trying to get you to realize, we go through life murmuring. The children of Israel did, and we do it. And we do it so easily. We do it so casually. We don't even know we're doing it. And, and God's saying, don't you rejoice the fact you belong to Christ. 
This is a trial, and you're failing. <laughs> this is a trial, and, and you're, you're earning your rewards or you're losing them, one or the other, as you go through this life. Trust in God. Be grateful. Let that come through your spirit. Be a testimony to everyone you meet. And, and let them, you know, don't just give them a track, but give them a, give them a little of your spirit. Give them a little of the spirit of God as you, as you go through life. I'm preaching to myself. I murmur, and you, and you probably murmur as well. So here he's saying, um, where are we? We got to verse 12. And then he said, you're to rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your sons, your daughters, your male, female servants, the Levite who is within your gate, since he has no portion nor inheritance with you. Do your, do your children, do your grandchildren believe that you rejoice when you come to church? Do you rejoice when you come to worship? Do you rejoice as, it, as you have a rejoicing spirit? Then verse 13, take heed to yourselves that you don't offer your burnt offerings at every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes where you shall offer your burnt offering, and there you shall do all that I command you. Now, he, he repeats it. He's repeated that twice. And now verse 15, however, you may slaughter and eat meat within all your gates, whatever your heart desires, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, of the gazelle and the deer alike. Only you shall not eat the blood, you shall pour it out on the earth like water. Verse 17, you may eat within your gates um, the tithe of your grain or your new wine or your oil or the firstborn of your herd or your flock or any of your offerings which you vow of your freewill offerings or of the heave offering of my hand. But you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses, your son, your daughter, your male servant, female servant, etc. Okay, so he's making a distinction here. If we went into 1 Corinthians and we went to chapter 10, which is where we're getting this umbrella of learning from the nation of Israel, what it begins in, in the first part of 1 Corinthians 10, we're to learn from them in their wilderness journey and not make the same mistakes is what Paul tells us there. But later in the chapter, it, 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 it teaches us that there is an issue of meat and blood. And, and what was happening in, in 1 Corinthians 10 that Paul's writing about is that it had evolved to the place that no one would eat meat unless it was offered to an idol because the Bible teaches that the life is in the blood. Okay, the life is in the blood. So you bleed someone out, they're dead. They're dead. So the life is in the blood. And so people believed that demons would live in the meat and that if you ate the meat without it being offered to a priest at a temple somewhere and the priest hadn't blessed it, then you better not be eating it because you're going to ingest those demons and they're going to rule in your life. And so, here, all the way before this takes place, all it's taken place in Israel, in the land of Israel, the promised land, all the idolatrous nations, it's already taken place. And, and God's saying to them through Moses ahead of time, you can slaughter meat at your own house and eat it. Don't, don't eat the blood. Don't drink the blood. Don't use the blood. 
drain the blood from the animal and eat the meat yourself. And it doesn't matter which meat. And whether you're an unclean person or a clean person, an unclean person would be someone who would maybe defile themselves and couldn't go to the tabernacle that day. Or an unclean person might be someone who's not pure blood Israeli or the Levite who's there. He said, not the Levite, but the whoever else is there. Uh, they could eat the meat too. So the meat's not an issue. But only, he goes on and says, but only if it's a sacrifice. You can't offer a sacrifice at your house. You can't say, uh, like today, you can't say, okay, I'm going to get up and my household's going to, we're going to celebrate communion when we eat lunch today. You can't do that. That's what he's saying to them. He's saying that you can't offer your sacrifices at your house. You've got to take those to the central location that God chooses and offer your sacrifices there. But you can eat meat anytime. You can, you can eat the same meat. It's the same meat you're going to go and offer at some time. So the meat is not holy. And it's not degraded if you don't offer it. So you can eat the meat. So God's given them ahead of time some instruction about it. But it's going to be this central place that you go. What we learn from this is, is that, let me just do some, some summary. We learn from this that God has a uniform program of worship at all times, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. All the instruction given the nation of Israel makes it clear uh, that God is very specific, that, he, that He's holy. He wants to be approached in a, a godly manner. Uh, he wants us to be people who acknowledge His holiness and that we have some degree of holiness ourselves in our approach to Him. Again, holiness doesn't mean you're without sin. Holiness means I'm setting apart this for God. I'm setting apart. I, I am set apart for God, and I'm setting apart my worship. It's for God. It's not for me. It's for God. And so I'm not doing it the way I choose. I'm doing it the way He has instructed me. And there's a world of difference in, in how we do that. So um, when we realize this, uh, and the, so let's move to the New Testament. So that we have the pattern in the Old Testament. Let's move to the New, Pet, New Testament worship. God's still holy, still must be approached in biblical instruction. Now, you're, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit within you. He goes with you to work. He goes with you to recreation. He goes with you wherever you go. But you don't worship. Uh, you, 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 you can worship Wherever you are, you can worship doing dishes. You can worship working, digging a ditch. You can worship in all those areas. But corporate worship is prescribed by God. Okay? Corporate worship is prescribed by God, and this is how he did it. It's a matter of the heart foremost, but there's also instruction. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the matter of some, but so much the more as you see the day approaching. It's what the writer of Hebrews said. And the structure is the first day of the week we gather together in a local assembly. Um, the first day of the week is the Lord's Day. It's the pattern given in the New Testament. Uh, it's an assembly of believers. When you look at the New Testament word church, the church literally means it's ecclesia in, in, in Greek, and it literally means assembly. Okay, If you think about the Reformation, during the Reformation, 
the Roman Catholics predominantly, they would say that the word church in the New Testament means the hierarchy structures. The Pope, it's the cardinals, the bishops, the priests. It's the structure, not the buildings. We're not talking about the building. We're talking about the hierarchy, the, the, the corporate structure. Okay, but, but and the Reformation came about, and the battle was that they killed each other over the fact that when they interpreted the scripture into English, the common people began to think that word means assembly. It doesn't mean the Pope and the priests and the court. It means when the assembly of the people come together. So that's what the word church means. We are to assemble together and we do it on the Lord's Day. There's to be leadership, pastors, elders, deacons, deacons, teachers. There's to be prayer, instruction, uh, preaching, teaching, baptism, and communion. The New Testament patterns, the part of assembly, were under authority. I'm to be under authority, you're to be under authority of the assembly and the leadership of the assembly. I'm trying to hurry up because I spent too much time on the first part. Okay. So, we're to be under the authority of the New Testament doctrine, teaching, leadership, and of each other. Okay, so we're under, we're under authority of the assembly together. We're under the authority of each other corporately. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her, that he might present to himself a glorious Church. Okay, so let's talk about what's he saying about church. Okay? In, in the New Testament, the word church, again, the assembly, is used in, in various manners. Sometimes it's used of the universal church, and it's of every saved person from the resurrection of Christ until Christ comes again, and, they, and that program is ended. So the church age is ended when Christ comes again, Revelation 19. Okay, so what happens is that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all in Christ. Some are already dead. Some of us are living. Some, of us, some are yet to be born if Christ tarries. But we're all in Christ. We're all going to make up the bride of Christ. We're the universal church, but we're not assembled. We're not assembled together yet. And then... Sometimes people use the word, and sometimes very seldom in the New Testament, but the word is used as all the people who believe in Christ who are living today. Okay, so around the world today, there are people meeting on the Lord's Day in Christ's name, and they belong to Christ. They're part of His church. Got it? Okay. They're part of His church. Down the road at Bellevue or First Baptist, wherever... You know, they're a part of his church. And, but, but that's the predominant use in the New Testament. The word church means a local assembly. We're a church. They're a church. First Baptist is a church. Stonegate is a church. We're, a church. we're, we're individual churches. We're local assemblies. And, and the Bible requires us to be a part of a local assembly. When you assemble together... When we take communion next week, the instruction for communion is when you come together. When you come together, you partake of, uh, of communion. Okay, so the pattern predominantly is the local assembly. 
And there we participate in two church ordinances, baptism and partaking of communion or the Lord's Supper. Let me give you a little brief information about church structure or organization. So we say, and I've been asked the question a lot over the years, why are there so many different denominations? Why are there so many different, different churches? And uh, that's just, that's, um, <laughs> and, and that Jesus said, I have sheep of other, that are not of this flock. Okay, so it's, it's okay. As long as they're doctrinal, it's okay. Uh, here, here's the different structure of churches. There are some churches that are structured from the top down. It's called the Episcopal Principle. That doesn't mean they're necessarily Episcopal churches. They're included in that. But so is the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, um, and the Episcopal Church, um, and it's top down. It means that they have a one one person at the top, and then it feeds down. Okay, it feeds down from there. Let me talk to you about the Roman Catholic Church in particular. Uh, and this is here the problem with the Roman Catholic Church. It's not the people who attend there. The problem, their doctrine is heretical. Their doctrine will lead you to hell because what they believe and what they teach, what their published doctrine is, is that when Christ died, the grace of Christ resides in the hierarchy of the church. It, it resides in the hierarchy, and that grace is dispensed down from the Pope, through the cardinals, to the, to the bishops, to the priests, and then to the people. Okay? To the congregation, to the people. And the people can receive that grace if you keep the ordinances. Is that what they call them? Ordinances? If you keep the ordinances, you, you're, you're baptized, you don't sin, you take communion, you go to confession, you... I mean, if you do your works, if you do your works, you receive that grace. But the church can withhold that grace, and the church can tell you whether you can get married or whether you can get a divorce. The church can tell you how you live. The church can tell you whether you're in or out. When it comes time when you die, whether you go to heaven or you don't go to heaven. The church, they are the repository of grace that came through the death of Christ. But the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that there's one mediator between man and God, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. It's not a hierarchy. Okay, so that's the problem with the Catholic Church. It's not the people that you know who are Catholic. Uh, they're, they're, I think there are a lot, of a lot of Catholics who are saved because they don't really know what their church teaches, and they read the Bible. And, and there are some Catholic people who teach the Bible. And so I think there's a lot of Catholic people who are actually saved. But if you're following Catholic doctrine, you're lost. How sad is that? Because there are a billion people who are doing that today. There's a billion, over a billion people who are part of the Catholic Church. Okay, and then uh, let, let's talk about other New Testament churches then. Uh, there are churches that are organized under the Presbyterian principle. Doesn't, doesn't mean they're a Presbyterian church, okay? We're not talking about that denomination. But the Presbyterian principle means that there is, uh, they're, they're, they're under an oversight of a board or a national organization. It means that you're, we would elect someone from our church to be representatives to 
the state, uh, the state assembly, and maybe to the national assembly, and but we would be under the authority of a, as a congregation of a national assembly. They would tell us what to do. If you listen to the news, you read it carefully. There's a lot of conflict going on today. Uh, it's happened here in Midland with Lutheran Church. Uh, it's happened with Methodist churches. Is that? When, when the church themselves vote locally that we're going to ordain uh, homosexual people or we're going to do homosexual marriages or blessings or whatever, and the people in the church say, mm, we're not going to have a part of that, so we're going to go and form our own church, and the, and the assembly says, you can go if you want to, but the building belongs to us. You, you paid for it and you built it, but we own it. And we're telling you what to do. And sometimes that assembly, they, that, that hierarchy, they appoint pastors uh, and they govern those churches. But people agree to that. They agree to that. And, and generally it functions okay uh, because you're electing people out of your churches to go and represent you. That's how we have a representative government. We're doing, we're doing the same thing. But then there's the congregational principle the congregational principle basically is what most Baptists are, is that the congregation uh, is an independent congregation. We elect the leadership. We elect the deacons. We elect the pastor. And uh, we, 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 we rule it. We can vote him out. Our, our bylaws say we can vote him out. Our, our bylaws say we can change the bylaws with a, with a big enough vote. Uh, you, you probably never read the bylaws, so, you know, but uh, we have to, there has to be a certain vote to call a pastor. There has to be, uh, so we are a congregational church. And you may say to me, well, which is the best? You know, I, I don't really have a problem with the Presbyterian model or the congregational model. Most churches are independent bodies who function independently unless they have decided they're going to, be a part of a national organization. Now, we belong to a fellowship. We belong to a fellowship of other uh, Baptist... Well, let me just... It's hard to explain. We, we cooperate, in a sense, with other churches that are like-minded churches to support missions, to support schools, to support endeavors, uh, to start other churches. So we, we cooperate with them, but we're not, we're not tied to them. We're, we're totally independent. Okay, so with all that said, here, here's the bottom line, then we'll go to church joyfully. God instructs us that we're to be a part of a local assembly. The New Testament instructs us we're to be a part of a local assembly, and we are to participate, and we are to rejoice uh, in the grace that God has given to us, and uh, and and. and and why does, he want to, why does he want us to do that? Does he hem us in? No, he's blessing us. He's blessing us. You're a blessing to me. You've taught me. You've encouraged me. You, you support me. You pray for me. I do that for you. That's what God intended. He intended for us to worship together. Sometimes you lift my spirit, and sometimes uh, hopefully I lift your spirit. And that's what God intended for us to do. We're, we're a part of a body. Paul describes it that there's a head, there's, there's arms, there's feet, there's kidneys, there's all, and we're different parts, but together we function to the glory of God. Together we worship. Together 
we exalt him. And together we are blessed. Together uh, we're blessed. There's no such thing in the New Testament as a Christian without a church home. Now, you might be in between, but there's no such thing as that. You, you, you worship on your own all the time and do it your way. That's, that, that's not the principle given in the Old Testament. That's not the principle given in the New Testament. Pray with me. Our Father, we do want to honor you. Lord, we, we don't want to be like the nation of Israel to grumble and mumble, but we want to focus on the things that really matter. Lord, the fact that you've loved us, that Christ died for us, that we're redeemed eternally. And Lord, I might be suffering today or I might be despondent over the issues of life, whether they're personal or whether they're national. Uh, but Father, it has nothing to do with the grace that you've given to me in Christ. And so let me be a person, uh, Lord, who rejoices. I pray that for all these people listening this morning, that we might be uh, people who rejoice because of what Christ has done, that you have loved us and met our need, and Lord, forgiven us, adopted us in your family, that one day we're going to, uh, Lord, abide in your presence, and, and the, the riches of your glory will be expressed to us. And Lord, let that be our hope, let it be our motivation and our worship, that Lord, we are grateful, thankful people Uh, without any sense of murmuring. Please help us. God help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, Lord bless you. We'll see you in church. Smiling and happy.